Last week, we talked about how Jesus is going to come back and we let ourselves muse just a little bit on what heaven will be like. And I want to thank Josh for that beautiful rendition of when we all get to heaven slash tread the heights, man, beautiful. This week, we're going to deal with the problem of judgment. As last week, we really got into the idea of bereavement and that we don't have to grieve like those with no hope. Okay, let me set this up a bit. Paul is reaching out to the Thessalonians because they were in in their faint-heartedness, which are his words, not mine. They were worried about their friends who had died, but they were also worried about themselves when it came to judgment and the day of the Lord. By the way, this still concerns all of us as well. Modernity has not changed our anxiety around the end of time, something I like to call eschatological anxiety or around the ideas of judgment. Especially in a crisis, Christians run to those passages on judgment to see if they are ready. Did they plan well enough? Are we prepared? I remember growing up and having a great deal of eschatological anxiety or even just good old fear of the judgment of God. Nobody likes to be judged and certainly no one likes to be found wanting. Paul, the good pastor that he was, and he was their pastor even from far away, I guess like I get to be with you all during this crisis, He addressed both these fears and relieved them by the application of these appropriate truths. You see, when Paul was with the Thessalonians, he must have taught them about the day of the Lord. He had no doubt explained it from the Old Testament, that it would be a way or a day of judgment. Amos, first of the great 8th century BC prophets, had made that plain. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord, he had fulminated. Why do you long for it? The day will be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness. And the prophet Joel had called it the great and terrible day of the Lord. These are frightening words, and they still frighten us. So Paul needed to help them out. You see, Thessalonians were proposing their own solutions to the problem, and Paul wanted to help, but first he had to let them know that their solutions weren't going to do the trick. So he begins by basically saying, knowing the date and the time, won't sort out your issues. You see, they were asking about dates and times, two different words in Greek, which, by the way, the disciples had asked Jesus these exact same questions. They figured they could make the right sort of plans if they knew when it was going to happen. Now, this is naive, but it's understandable. So he tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now, concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. Why doesn't he need to write them? He had had already told them about the fact that they wouldn't know when it would happen. It would be pointless because, number one, they already knew. And number two, the day will come unexpectedly. Then he begins to use a very familiar analogy, the thief in the night. We've all heard this. We've heard Jesus say this before in Matthew 24, which means that his coming will be both unexpected and sudden because that's the problem with thieves, right? They're never polite enough to let you know when they're coming, which in my book, is just rude. In verse 2, it says, For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. The same kind of unexpectedness will happen on the day of the Lord. Verse 3, When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them, as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. So you've got the thief in the night and then the second analogy of the woman in labor, which reiterates the fact that the coming of the Lord will be sudden. When we were pregnant with our first child, labor came all at once. Hannah was breech, but was on her due date. So we've always said she has a great sense of timing, but absolutely no sense of direction. 
There is a difference between these analogies, though. For although both are sudden, the burglar is unexpected, whereas labor, once you know you're pregnant, is expected. So when we put these two metaphors together, we may see Christ's coming will be, number one, sudden and unexpected, but number two, sudden and unavoidable. In the first case, there will be no warning. In the second, there will be no escape. So what do we do in the face of such sudden and unavoidable judgment? Luckily, Paul tells us how. Because there is a right solution. So in verse 4, he says, But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you, the verse 5, for you are all children of the light and the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. Verse 6 now. So be on your guard. Not asleep like the others. Stay alert and clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. That's a, that's a big piece, I know, but it, it all goes together. The big word here that we need to emphasize is surprise. We won't be alarmed, for there is no need for this to take us by surprise. Why? Well, there's two reasons that a person is taken by surprise when a burglar breaks in. One, he comes unexpectedly, and second, because the people in the house are asleep. So Paul's suggestion is that we not sleep. Because we're not in darkness, we're children of the light. In this way, he's juxtaposing those who have a relationship with Christ to those who do not. He seems to suggest that bad things happen in the night, even as he is using this as a metaphor. So if you ask the question, is Jesus coming in the day or the night? The answer is this, both. Spiritually speaking, it depends on who you are, right? If you know Christ, he is coming in the daylight. And if you do not, it is certainly a rude awakening in the middle of your slumber. I mean, have you ever been woken out of a deep and beautiful sleep? It's always a rough way to wake up. Paul is making the argument that we are not in the darkness, that we are sons and daughters of the day. We do not belong in the night or the darkness. Therefore, we're not asleep. If we could look at it another way, the biblical writers often thought of two eons, one dark and one light. Darkness before Jesus came, light after. He was there and he established his kingdom in the light. So at that point, we can see there are both dark and light happening at the same time for those who believe and those who don't believe respectively. For the time is coming where the two ages are overlapping. Hebrews 6.5 tells us this, that he is in the coming age. Already God has brought us out of darkness into wonderful light, says 1 Peter. So what's the point here? That we who believe are no longer living in darkness and therefore will not be surprised when the event of his coming for us because it happens in the day. By the way, this is the impetus for each of us and every one of us to share the gospel with everyone we can because we don't want anyone to be caught by surprise of his coming. We want them to live in the light and experience his coming in the light. Paul's also making the case that our behavior should be daytime behavior. We shouldn't sleep or yawn our way through life, and we shouldn't live our life in our pajamas. My bet is we get a pass for the last two months because this is not normal. But we're to stay awake and alert and be ready when Christ comes. We will not be taken by surprise. Verse 8 says, But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing our helmet, the confidence of salvation. Now, this portion is something that Paul has done before. He's done it in Romans 2, in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, and in Ephesians. He wants us to be prepared by putting on the armor of God. 
He varies the symbolism, by the way, so it shows up a little bit differently each time. But in this time, he's reminding us of chapter 1, verse 3 in 1 Thessalonians, where he emphasizes faith, hope, and love. And just a caveat here, I, I think I was confused when I was younger about what it meant to be ready for when Jesus came. I always thought it was about behavior. And if I could just get good enough, then my behavior wouldn't make me worried about his coming and I could be ready. But for some reason, I was never quite ready. There was always one more thing that I could do. We began to use the Bible as self-help and seek preachers who can help us get better or get prepared. It seems that Paul is talking about an attitude of preparedness that seems to really lean into faith and hope and love. Now, these were not words that I remember hearing so much. Rather, the words I heard about guarding your heart and guarding your mind against the enemy and temptation. Man, I wish I would have heard those three words a bit more. I I would have had a whole different idea of what it means to be prepared. My prepper heart would have been deeply different, and all of ours would have. When the greatest preparation for the coming of Jesus is clarifying who we have faith in, where our hope resides, and how we love most profoundly, it might not be as daunting. We've been looking for signs, but they've been around us all the time. See, what we got to do to prepare is find someone who needs hope and be hope. Find someone who needs faith and tell them about Jesus. And find someone who needs love and love them unreasonably. That's pretty good practice for heaven. Verse 9 says, For God chose to save us through Jesus Christ, not to pour out His anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when He returns, we can be with Him forever. So let's spend a little time here. How is it possible to put on a helmet of hope of salvation? On what foundation is our Christian hope built, right? Some Thessalonians were afraid of judgment, of the parousia, as they say, because to them, judgment is always a bad thing. How could they be confident that it would bring them salvation instead? Paul wrote this verse and the next to answer this question. Remember, Paul based what we should do, stay awake, alert, self-control, on being well-armed, and on who we are, which is, you know, children of the light. Now he's going on to base who they are on who God is and what he's done for us. He makes two great statements in this verse. Number one, God did not appoint or choose for us to suffer wrath, rather to receive salvation, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is verse 10, that Jesus Christ died for us, that whether we're dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. Not to reiterate last week, but there's a redundancy here, right? Time and proximity, God's love languages. He saved us so that we could be with him and with him forever. But that first statement, that God did not choose for us to suffer but to receive salvation, man, that's so good. C.S. Lewis says it like this, when Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you had been the only man or woman in the world. That's the kind of love that we're speaking of. Without reservation, God died for you. He did it so that we could live our lives in freedom rather than fear. And Paul's explanation, again, is so that we might have freedom, not fear. We are so caught up in the mechanics of the end time that we forget about the idea that it's God who saves us. And that second phrase, so that whether we are alive or dead, we can know that he saved us, so that we can be with him forever. Flippancy isn't the right word, but he seems to be saying, listen, it doesn't matter the situation, dead or alive. This is what God has done and is doing, so there is nothing to fear. In fact, fear is excluded. 
Why would we worry about that which God has already taken care of? It's a serious question. Because what sort of arrogance is in us that we think we need to fix or even completely understand what God has done in his infinite wisdom and glory and grace? What right do we, as the inexplicable object of God's love, to question the love that he has poured out on us in such quantities and in such excess and abundance? How does figuring out how all this ends increase his love, lift up the cross, or create curiosity in others about what he has done? By focusing on the mechanics and signs and preying on the fears of the end of time, we create a fearful and predatory Christian. If we are not careful, our churches will look like places where you may find answers but not comfort, explanation but not encouragement, recipes for the end of time but no reciprocal love. That is a danger we have to stay away from with all of our might. It does God no justice to build fear into the end of the heart of man. And then in verse 11, it says this, So encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are already doing. And if this sounds like we ended the pericope or the passage the same way last week, then you are paying attention. Because it's the same word. Some translations render this word, which is parakaleo, as comfort. Regardless of how you translate it, you know the meaning. It's another expression of the more basic command we find in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, which is simply to love each other. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another, it says. Listen, the world can be a hard and unfriendly place, as we all know. It's easy to get hurt by it. We can become dispirited and depressed. But God means for his church to be a community of mutual support. Encourage one another. Comfort one another. These are the words that are used. Now, no community can call itself Christian if it is not characterized by reciprocal love. Yet equally, no community is such a paradise of love that its members do not need to hear Paul urging them to love and encourage and comfort more and more. Remember what they say, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it. But Paul ends his piece with this great admonition, just as you are already doing, he says. Paul encourages them with this phrase to remind them that they are already doing this encouraging. They just needed some answers to questions and some comfort. I find it interesting that the comfort Paul gave them was not just simple words of comfort or encouragement, but he gave them theological comfort. He says Jesus died for you, and he is for you, and he is coming back for you. His comfort was a correct theological understanding of who God is, not of time frames and signs, but of a much greater comfort, the comfort of the grand narrative of God who loves us so much as to give us his son. A God who is willing to save us completely, that the rest is just, just logistics, just punctuation. It's like we want to look for the crumbs of the evidence when the whole case has been given to the whole cake has been given to us. Now listen, are you a science chaser? Do you look for the end of the world under every rock and cranny? Listen, God wants you to be prepared. But how are you preparing? Are you preparing by putting on the army, the armor of God? Listen, this is not conspiracy. It's not fear-mongering. And it's not even a perfect understanding or execution of the law. If you want to know if you're prepared, then the question you need to ask is, how's your faith? How's your hope? How's your love? Do a check on those signs. 
If you find yourself spending more time trying to figure out what's going on, who's responsible, and the demons behind every tree and corner, and which cell phone tower is creating the virus, or, or naming people who are trying to control us, if you spend more time doing that than trying to encourage faith, hope, and love in each other, then you're doing the end of time wrong. You are preparing for the wrong battle. You're arming yourself with the wrong ammunition. You may win the Facebook battle, but you will lose the war that Jesus has already won for you. Don't let this time of peace and calm and encouragement slip into fear and fear-mongering. We're better than that. God is better than that. And we've been given clear instructions as to how we prepare and to whom the battle belongs. Let's not fall back into thinking that His grace is less than sufficient. Faith, hope, love, and encouragement These are the hallmarks of the end-of-time judgment for Christians, not fear. We have nothing to fear, for Christ is for us and not against us. This This is the time we should be declaring the year of the Lord's favor rather than assuming judgment is against us because judgment sometimes goes in a positive direction. I once had a few tickets to my name. They were speeding tickets. And at one point, I had to stand in front of a judge. It was nerve-wracking. Because I had run a stop sign and there was no question. I may have run a stop sign that was directly in front of a CHP office. So I went to the judge in the one suit that I owned and my 17-year-old self shaking in front of someone who had so much power over me. When I told the judge my predicament, not only did he understand, but he lived over by where I had received the ticket. He was surprised that there was a stop sign on that corner as it was a relatively new stop sign. He let me go with a warning saying that he may have run the same stop sign so he understood my predicament. But he did encourage me to drive slower. When judgment is declared on us, we need not have anxiety. As we have taken up the cross of Jesus as our own, today we live in faith and hope and love. We live to encourage one another. So let that be the word again today. Because to prepare for the end of time is to get really good at being faith for other people, showing them the hope of Jesus, and giving them incredible and unreasonable amounts of love. We do that even in times of crisis. In fact, maybe more so in times of crisis. When we do that, when we have decided to do that, then we are preparing for the end of time. And by the way, the date and the time and the hour, they become superfluous. We don't care about them nearly so much because we are about the work of God, declaring His favor for us. If you've ever worried about the date and time, maybe it's time to take off your eschatological watch and begin to live in the kingdom that God has already given us. Let's bow our heads today. God of grace, Lord of mercy, our faith, our hope, and our love is rest completely in you. May we not be fear. May we not catch ourselves fear-mongering, creating anxiety in other people. But Lord, may we lean into what it means to be prepared for the second coming, prepared for the judgment, prepared for the end of time. By being faith and hope and love, by putting that on as our armor, understanding that you have already won this battle for us, Lord. And Lord, when things get dicey, when we, when we get a little scared, Lord, be in our hearts. Give us courage. Help us to be courageous so that we don't add to the noise, but so that we might become that encouragement 
that the world so desperately needs right now. Lord, thank you for being for us. And Lord, even in these crazy times, it is in your name that I pray because your name is the one that we glorify. In the name of Jesus, amen.